Welcome to Thriving Through Menopause, where we talk about this time of life, mind, body, and spirit. I'm your host, Clarissa Christensen. Each week, I'm joined by top professionals dropping their tips and advice. Remember, episodes drop every Tuesday. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a beat. And if you like this podcast, please rate and review it. Thank you, because this helps others to find the show. You can check out our website, find out which episodes are coming up, and get the latest blog and advice by going to my website, thrivethroughmenopause.com, and get ready to thrive, not just survive, through perimenopause and beyond. Welcome to another episode of Thriving Through Menopause with me, Clarissa. I'm really excited for today's conversation because if you've been a regular listener of this podcast, if you are somebody who's followed me on social media or heard me speak in public, you will know that I say so many times about perimenopause and menopause that one of the key things as individuals we can do is to be in touch with our own experiences, to track our symptoms so that we can have much better conversations with our healthcare providers. So I was excited when today's guest uh, contacted me and wanted to share some of the wonderful work that she has been doing. She is Dr. Anne Hester, a board-certified internal medicine physician with 25 years direct patient care. And she is also somebody who just this year in fact, last month, November, released one of her new books, Patient Empowerment 101. And I am so glad you're here. Welcome, and to Thriving Through Menopause. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I think this is such a wonderful and such a critically important topic for my listeners to hear more about from a clinician's perspective, not only from a woman's perspective. Sure. But maybe let's begin with, you know, how does somebody get started with becoming more empowered around perimenopause, around personal health records, for example? But the first thing is to realize that you have a tremendous amount of power. Even though in past, some healthcare systems, and particularly the U.S., have been very paternalistic, meaning that the doctor would say, this is what's going to happen, and the patient would say yes and go home and maybe not do it or just say no. Now people are becoming much more conscious. They're becoming savvier healthcare consumers because it really is their lives that we're looking at. And so they're no longer willing to just say, okay, well, you make the decisions. They're saying, hey, this is me. This is my life. I need a stake in this. And they're putting their feet down. Their feet down so to speak, and they are saying it's time for me to get involved. And so as far as developing your record, it's really important to have your own medical record because as time goes by, you're likely to change physicians periodically, whether your insurance changes, whether you move, whatever the case may be, the doctor that you saw last year might not be the one you see next year. And if you need access, immediate access to your health records, the only way you're going to be assured that you have them is if you personally have them. Even if you have access to a portal, 
You have an insurance company and they have a portal. You go online and keep up with your record. When you change insurance companies, you lose that access. If you work with a doctor, the doctor gives you access to your records and you change doctors. Do not expect to have that same access. And so if as time goes by, you keep up with your records, you keep copies of important things, you chart important issues, then you can feel comfortable when you are asked specific questions. For instance, if you keep your own copy of your medical records in a three-ring binder, you can have charts, you can copy EKGs, test results, and so forth. And so when you walk into a new doctor's office, you have everything right there. You don't have to wait for that doctor to figure out how he's going to get your EKG from two years ago or how he's going to know whether or not to repeat that CAT scan that you're really not sure what it showed. And so the potential is tremendous, not only to optimize your care, but to decrease the need for unnecessary tests and procedures, some of which can be painful or dangerous or at the very least expensive and time-consuming. Yeah. So there are very many different aspects of this medical record. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, in many parts of the world now, your actual time in the doctor's surgery is really short. So mm-hmm. if the doctor hasn't had time to read your records, then, or and you don't have good sight, you're spending that valuable consultation time, aren't you, Anne, with, with suddenly having to go backtrack and go through it all. Absolutely. And that really puts people at a disadvantage because when you go to see your doctor, you've made an excellent point. Doctors actually frequently spend more time doing administrative things than they do actually face-to-face. So between documenting in an electronic health record, other things, the time that's actually spent face-to-face with a patient has really gone down. So the time you have with your doctor, you want to be able to utilize every moment of that time. And you don't want to be told, okay, well, let me get your records. You come back in three weeks. Okay, so that's a prolonged period of time that you're suffering. You have to take off work again. You have to drive across town. You need to sit in the office again. You can eliminate a lot of this by just being completely prepared. If you have your health records, that will help him and not just have them. Honestly, doctors are not going to be very happy if you walk in the office and you have six inches of medical records dating back 30 years. <laughs> they're going to smile and decide they're going to say, oh, my gosh, and put it on a long list of things to do, which likely will never really be addressed. Yeah. They'll skim the records. But if you can develop a concise, detailed, organized medical record to hand to your doctor, such as this tab is my family history. This tab has my medical problem. This tab has my surgeries. This tab has my medications and so forth. Because doctors set up medical records in that kind of organized fashion. They can yeah. go from A to B to C to D quickly. So if you can hand your new doctor that information, you can do him a tremendous service. You can do yourself a tremendous service because the doctor otherwise is going to have to get your signature your release, send it out to your yeah. other doctor or doctors and wait yeah. and wait and wait. Yeah. And, you know, at least in America, doctors are not required to keep your records indefinitely. They, they may have to keep them for a number of yeah. years. Seven is a, a common number. So if your records are destroyed, 
then they're gone. If you don't know this off the top of your head, which you're likely not going to know, mm. who would really keep you know details in her head like that, then you're really going to be at a disadvantage. And so you do need to have this documentation. Yeah, that is some really, really good points. And I think you've included not only there the surgeries and the medication, but things like your family history, because that exactly. certainly comes up. I mean, when I've had issues like in the past with my blood pressure, that was definitely one of the questions. Now, if mm-hmm. you don't know that, you don't know whether maybe what you have is something that is genetic in your family, which absolutely points the doctor then to it maybe a very different approach mm-hmm. than if they're seeing that's only happening to you. So, uh, you know, right. that is those are some really key things for us to bear in mind it, when we approach any cl- clinical clinician and any appointment, whether it's to do with perimenopause or any mm-hmm. health issue. Exactly. Yes. So that's clearly some of the things that we can do to help our doctor. What else can women do, particularly in this sort of life stage, to support their um, their doctor to help them better? I once asked a lady a yes or no question, and I timed it. It took her 10 minutes to answer the question. Because she was thinking it through in her head. And I was curious because I spent so much time in primary care and it's always been discouraging that there's such a tremendous void between the way doctors think and the way patients think. So we go to medical school. We start in undergraduate school with all the science. Then we go to medical school. Then we go to residency. And we eat, drink, sleep, breathe medicine. Patients don't have patient school. So when a patient goes to the doctor's office and the doctor, you know, is standing in front of them, there's so many things going on. The person in the next room who may be having a heart attack or a chest pain, you're concerned about them. The, the patient they have to get to see at the, at the hospital as soon as possible. And the patient in front of them gives them very circuitous mm. answers. I'm not really sure. I really have thought about it. Uncle George came to town and I think this was going on because when I saw him, they just go on and on. That is not only ineffective, but as you said, it cuts down on the short period of time that patients have with the doctors. So there are certain things that people could do to prepare. Number one, write down a list of your questions and prioritize them. If your doctor ends up having to cut your visit short, you have five minutes space space with the doctor. You don't want a list of 20 questions with no specific order because you're not going to get to what's really important. If there are five things you want to address, prioritize them because if you cannot get to all of them, at least you can get to the most important ones and maybe you can have a follow-up visit. What a lot of people don't realize is that in America, Doctors cannot just charge the insurance company whatever they want to charge for a visit. They have to be able to substantiate the severity of the illness and the intensity of service that they provide. So you can't just charge an insurance company a high level for any visit. And they've got to be able to document this if they're audited by the insurance company. And they cannot show that they follow the established guidelines. They could be fined and they can be accused of insurance fraud. 
which is tremendous. Yeah. There are, I mean, there are significant ramifications behind that. There are eight key factors, and it's not just for insurance purposes, but these things really do help us understand what's going on. Number one, the severity of the problem. If you see a doctor and the doctor wants to know how bad does it hurt, it hurts really bad. That's really not enough. Think about this. A lot of women have had babies. Childbirth would be considered a 10. It's excruciatingly painful. <laughs> whereas, whereas, you know, you're barely stubbing your toe that you don't have to say, ouch, let's consider that a one. I've had patients, I've gone into the hospital room, so what's your pain now? Oh, it's a 10. And they, they're texting, watching TV, eating. No, that's not a 10. So think about the severity of your, your symptoms. It's so severe, doctor, I can't get out of bed. Mm. It's so severe, I've had to take off two weeks of work. Or it doesn't really have much impact on my activities of daily living. I can do whatever else I want to do. It's just a little bit of annoyance. An annoyance. So the severity is significant. The location. If you say, I have belly pain, I don't know what that means. Do you have acute appendicitis? Is your spleen inflamed? You know, do you have diverticular disease, pancreatitis? And also, I don't know what that means. So location, be specific. Yeah. Doctors divide the abdomen into four quadrants. Like just think about an imaginary line through your navel and then from the bottom of your breastbone down okay. to your pelvic area. Yeah. The right upper quadrant, the left upper quadrant, yeah. the right lower quadrant, the left lower quadrant. And there are different organs in each area. And so if you say, you know, doctor, I've had pain in the upper right abdomen, that's going to make them think something different than if you've had pain in the lowest part of the right abdomen where your appendix is or the lower left. So be as specific as possible. If you have chest pain, does that mean that he needs to be concerned about a problem with your heart? Or are you having a little bit of discomfort in the upper right side of the chest, which is it's likely to be your heart. So be specific. Yes. The duration. How long do how long has it been going on? Or is I have had this problem ongoing for two weeks? Timing is important. Yes. It occurs often on each time I have it, it lasts five seconds, five minutes, five hours. So duration and timing are somewhat different. And then you have modifying factors. What things make it better? What things make it worse? If I have chest pain, it gets worse when I walk. That's going to be more concerning than yes. saying, well, my chest pain gets better when I belch, okay? And one point, first one, the doctor may be concerned about your heart, and the second one, more likely gas. Yes. Associated signs of symptoms. I have abdominal pain. And when I have abdominal pain, I have nausea and I throw up mm-hmm. versus I have abdominal pain I have diarrhea and the diarrhea is black or the variety of things, associated signs and symptoms that go along with your illness. What else have you noticed during the same time frame? Yeah. And the context. Doc, I had this excruciating back pain. Oh, by the way, it happened after I moved a very heavy <laughs> sofa the other day. Yeah. Okay, that's different. Yes. Than just off the cuff of sitting down and then this severe back pain occurs. So the context is important. Yes. So those eight features 
if you go through those eight features, you are going to almost help the doctor pinpoint exactly what's going on. Instead of a list of 20 potential issues, you're going to help dwindle it down to one, two, maybe three. And what that means is you're going to need fewer tests and procedures to figure out which of those things it is. That, I mean, that is so, so helpful just to be really specific. And I think for the women who are listening also to this, this podcast, the people who listen to this podcast, things like tracking your periods, because often mm-hmm. women, we've had them. We've had them for 30 right. years before we're mm-hmm. in perimenopause. So most of us have paid unless we've had an issue like endometriosis or, yes, or PMDD or something, most of us have paid no attention to them. And that's particularly important because if you've gone through the menopause and then you start having bleeding, it may not be a period. It yeah. may be a sign of endometrial cancer or some other yeah. issue. Okay. So all of your signs and symptoms, you need to track in detail. Yes. Because if you can go in and give a detailed, concise explanation of your problem in five minutes, you're going to walk out a much happier patient and have more yeah. money in your pocket because you don't have to have all these tests and procedures. Yeah. Done. Absolutely. And, and sometimes I think women are now being encouraged. They've got to have medication regardless. But actually, if they, you know, they always say, oh, now there's a popular trend, hormone replacement therapy, I've, I've got to have that. But if you're actually in conversation with your clinician, they might say, well, uh-huh. you might need to change some lifestyle. You may not necessarily have to be medicated. That's a good point. And there's time for that if the visit goes smoothly. <laughs> yes. yes, the doctor spends the whole time trying to understand what's going on. Those are the last few minutes that could be crucial he just doesn't have them. No. He doesn't have that time. No. So that's just another reason to be concise because when you get through the most important thing, then there's time for everything else. Exactly. Like the lifestyle recommendation exactly. or the, the counseling, all of exactly. those things. Exactly. But that, if you're busy, yeah, like a lot of coming in and either thinking you have to be medicated or you have no clue, then then you're spending, as, you, as we both think, I think we're saying, is you just spend a lot of time going round and round. Uh, and yes, then I and, think and doctors don't do their job. And then women are frustrated and go then straight exactly. to social media and say doctors are useless. And that's that's not fair either because there's no, very few clinicians who are trying to be unhelpful, misogynistic, or whatever appalling labels seem to be laid on them right now when we as patients are not also playing our role in the conversation. I agree that the unfortunate thing is patients have not been given the tools that they need to an extent that they can really optimize their care and really place themselves at the center of their healthcare team, which is where they deserve to be. Yeah, absolutely. And that is a real shift, I think, from, you know, I can think back of being a girl and remembering the clinician I had, a local physician that I went to as a girl. I mean, First of all, the appointment was probably 20 minutes to half an hour. He knew our family. He lived around the corner. It was a long appointment. It was a long appointment. He had time. And he had time and he was, you know, there wasn't a a thousand other people sitting there. He didn't have nearly as much stuff to do when we were there. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, now 
you know, if I see them, it's 10 minutes. I don't see the same person every time. It's a very different relationship. So I think that's part of what we as patients really have to understand that we're moving and we're moving to telehealth services, which have their own issues. Maybe you want to talk a little to that as well, how we navigate those conversations. I think telehealth visits are very important because if you have a a little rash or you have a mild upper respiratory infection, you don't really need to travel across town, take off work, sit in the doctor's office and be seen and then go get your prescriptions. And then you can take hours um, and your time is valuable too. So minor things, yes. There's certain things you don't want to do telehealth for. Chest pain, anything that's very concerning. If you are very concerned, that should be a warning sign. This is not a telehealth visit. And also, certainly, if you have a family member or somebody else there with you, they can also give you some input. But that being said, medicine certainly is not what it used to be as far as these long-term personal relationships that uh, clinicians and patients with used to have. So telehealth visits certainly have their place, but realistically, you may not see that telehealth doctor again ever. Uh, there may not be an ongoing relationship. The next time you see a telehealth doctor, maybe somebody else. So that's just even more of a reason to be prepared, be prepared to do everything you need to do on that visit at that time. And the same, the exact same issues uh, apply. The severity, the location, the duration, the yeah. quality, the modifying factors, associated yeah. signs and symptoms, context, and timing. Yes. Those eight issues are going to be important for this telehealth if you're in the emergency department. Actually, I spent about 15 years as a hospital specialist. And even in the emergency room, those are the sorts of things that we would ask. Yeah. You know, as long as the patient, you know, is, is not just in excruciating pain or really can't communicate, if you communicate, we're going to want to know those eight things because those things really help us understand. Yeah. In the doctor's office, the same thing. Yes. And so when you see a healthcare provider, and it may not be a doctor, it may be a nurse practitioner, it may be a physician assistant, it doesn't matter. Those factors will help us come to a conclusion about the most likely diagnoses, and that will streamline your care. Yes. Yes, def- definitely. And then I think that doesn't also lead you to having less unnecessary tests and procedures if you can have that conversation. I think that's obviously in more and more healthcare systems we're having to pay. You know, the user has to pay even if there is public health, like there is in a lot of Europe and the UK, there is still now more upfront payment than we've ever had. The United States Border Patrol has exciting and rewarding career opportunities with the nation's largest law enforcement organization. Border Patrol agents enjoy great pay, outstanding federal benefits, and up to $20,000 in recruitment incentives for newly appointed agents. If you are looking for a way to serve something greater than yourself, consider the United States Border Patrol. Learn more online at cbp.gov careers USBP. That's cbp.gov careers USBP. I have this term that I call OHEC syndrome. So when a, a, di- a patient comes in the office and a person asks questions, I don't know, I never thought about it. it, just spends a lot of time. We really can't help the doctor pinpoint it. Like, well, 
The belly pain could be appendicitis. It could be pancreatitis, hepatitis. It could be this, this, and this. But it's definitely OHEC syndrome. OHEC, I have no idea what's going on. I've got to order a lot of tests and procedures to figure this one out. Yeah. And so the patient leaves, spend, and has to get unnecessary tests and procedures. And honestly, some tests is not benign. Some tests no. have the potential to be very harmful. For, for instance, the CAT scan is typically not much of an issue, but sometimes if you have to get cat, a CAT scan with contrast, it can cause kidney damage. And we know that if you get multiple CAT scans over the course of years, there is a slight but not insignificant chance that it will increase your risk of cancer. You don't want tests and procedures that you don't need. No. So you need to be as prepared as possible every time you see a doctor or any other medical provider. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is such an important point because... There are risks and side effects. And I think the other thing is sometimes women find themselves being given medication like antidepressants when maybe something else is appropriate. And sometimes that's because, again, they're not necessarily having these conversations. It isn't just because it's a default. It's because they're showing up maybe with what looks like depression. But 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 it can be you know, perimenopausal hormonal symptoms, but because we're not explaining it or we're not very well prepared, Mm -hmm. there becomes a default in medication as well. And and that's an excellent point. Defensive medicine is huge. Um, I don't have the exact figures, but it's been estimated that billions of dollars are spent each year just in the U.S. in defensive medicine because doctors don't want to get sued. And so sometimes doctors order tests and procedures and medications and so forth, they're not sure what's going on, but they're trying to do something. They have 10 minutes to see and evaluate Mrs. Jones, realizing Mrs. Brown is in the next room, Mr. Um, Williams is across the hall. Everybody needs to be seen. Everybody needs care. And that doctor is trying to do the best he or she can with the constraints in front of, of you know, front of them. Yeah. And so sometimes it's just a knee-jerk reaction just to order things that may or may not be necessary just as a buffer, just just in case this yeah. is going on. I don't want to miss this. I can't risk missing something. No, no. And I think sometimes also I think patients have been trained that you should get something when you come to the doctors, not that they should walk yes. you away and say, well, actually... No, you know, and I was watching a program that was done by the BBC. It was very interesting. And the clinician was very clear that he didn't want to have to give antibiotics to everybody who asked. And he says, this is my ingoing position. I think he was just sitting in in a surgery and acting like this. Mm -hmm. And he said, by the end, he said, oh, God, I've given it out all the time because patients are demanding something and they won't leave till I've given them something. I love that you bring that up. I was going to give you an example, specifically antibiotics. Upper respiratory infections are often treated with antibiotics for that reason, because Mm -hmm. patients often expect, hey, doc, I want some antibiotics. And so the doctors, doctors not infrequently give in and prescribe antibiotics. As more time has gone by, the less likely to do so. But it's important for people to realize not only can antibiotics have side effects, 
But there's one particular type of diarrhea. It's called C. diff. C. diff has the potential to be fatal. It has the potential to cause such severe inflammation of your colon. You have to have surgery on your colon. It can cause septic, septic shock. It can be horrific, life-threatening. And a major risk factor for that is antibiotic use. So when you see your doctor, you have diarrhea, you may notice that he probably going to ask, have you been on antibiotics recently? Because we know that this potentially devastating type of diarrhea mm. is strongly linked to antibiotics. You don't need them. Don't take them, no. please. And don't pressure the doctor to give you the antibiotics because he may or may not just give in and go against better judgment and write it. And that could potentially lead to C. diff. And I'm not trying to gross anybody out, but one treatment for C. diff is a fecal transplant. Oh, You get somebody else's yeah, yeah. species. Yes. Um, and so this is not insignificant. No. So again, the better equipped you are to tell them what's going on, the better you're going to fare. And also the goal is not for one person to come out on top is for you all to work together. This is what's going on, yeah. Mrs. Brown, Mrs. Williams, and this is what I think we need to do about it. And you all talk about it. Yes. Well, Doc, this is this. And be honest, if you are on a fixed income, uh-huh. don't be afraid to ask, you know, does this come in generic? Exactly. Or how much is this going to cost? Because if you walk out of the doctor's office and he's giving you this new antibiotic or this new whatever, that's all the all the rage, and you get to the the uh, pharmacy, and there's two hundred dollars insurance doesn't cover it, or you have to get prior authorization. Yeah, yeah. Then you have to go back, or you yes. have to make adjustments. I've had people say, "Doctor Hester, I can choose between my medicine and food." And for a lot of people, that is very real. Yeah, yes. So ask about the cost. Ask if it's generic, and there are four dollar prescription plans at a variety of pharmacies. There are medication discount cards. And so have honest conversations with your doctor and make sure that when you walk into the office, you're going to be able to afford the medicine. And if there are any issues, any side effects, don't assume that you have an allergy. Contact the doctor. Yes. If there's something minor going on, the doctor can tell you something differently, such as Asthma, the true asthma allergy can kill you and it can save your life if you have a heart attack. Yes. So you cannot assume that if you have stomach upset from aspirin, you are allergic to aspirin. It's probably the inflammation that most people get if they take it on the empty stomach. So the doctor will say, okay, take a coated aspirin or take it on the full stomach. Yes. That may fix it. Yeah. This is just one of many things. But if you're in communication with your doctor and you let him know what's going on, he or she will be in a good position exactly. to make those adjustments needed to help you. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, every time my doctor says to me, no, I don't think we'll medicate yet. Do try this lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, thank you for yeah, not leaping absolutely. to medication as the first point of call, mm-hmm. but trying to work with me um, in the first instance and, and keeping, if you do, do you ever give any medication to give it at a very low dose uh, and I, be like that. I and agree. I'm so, I'm always so grateful because that is, we're, we're not starting with the premise of you need this dose really high, unless you do. 
I mean, that's a different thing. But a lot of the there things are times that you do. There are times but you, that you do. Yeah. You are absolutely correct. I am very much a naturalist. If I can get away with not taking drugs, I don't want them. No. I've seen so many cases. I've admitted so many people to the hospital who have had severe issues with medications. They are chemicals. They are made in yes. a laboratory. Yeah. If there is a natural way to fix your problem and your doctor offers it, take it. And if it doesn't work, then certainly it's a stepwise progression. If your sugar blush was a little bit high, your doctor says, okay, you can afford to lose a little bit of weight. You can change your diet. You can exercise. These are things you can do to try to get it down yeah. without drugs. Yeah. High blood pressure, the exact same thing. Yes. If he says, I want to try two or three months with the lifestyle modifications, and if that doesn't work, we'll go to drugs. That is very reasonable. Be appreciative. Yeah. Take it and run. Yeah. Don't insist on a medication because medications are chemicals. That being said, if you need it, don't if if your doctor strongly recommends that you need it, that you take it, don't go to the other extreme and say it's a chemical. I don't want it. I I met one lady in the ER who had a stroke because she said, you know, I was just doing garlic for my blood pressure. Ma'am, your pressure's 220. You just had a stroke. I said that to myself, but in her, because she had been told, just take garlic. It will take care of your blood pressure. But she had a stroke. So don't, either extreme is not good. No, either is no, definitely. Work with your doctor. Absolutely. And maybe one of the, the last question I'd love to put you to you, and in all of this wisdom, is how does a patient find the doctor that's right for them? There are several important things. Number one, word of mouth is very important. If your neighbor loves her doctor, that's good, but that doesn't mean that doctor is perfect for you. Mm. Ask friends, family members, co-workers, and so forth, whom they see. If you have an insurance plan that has a provider list, that narrows down, narrows down your possibilities. So look on the list of providers, see who is near you physically, whether it's you know, if you want to be able to go for work and you work on the other side of town, that's one thing. If you want to be able to go to somebody near your home, that's someplace, a different issue. So determine your priorities. I want a doctor who's close to me. I don't care if it's a man or a woman, or I prefer a woman. I want somebody who's been in practice for 20, 30 years, or that doesn't matter to me. You determine what's important to you. Do you want a doctor who's conversational, who you can sit and talk and laugh with as time allows, or do you want a doctor who is all business, so to speak? You'll glean those sorts of things from the people who I've already seen that doctor. Those are some personality issues that you can get you know, firsthand recommendations on. Also, you need to research the doctor. So if you go online, for instance, in the U.S., Medicare Compare has a site that you can go to find a high percentage of U.S. doctors. And you can get all sorts of information about that doctor. It's the same with hospitals and so forth on this site. But there are a variety of sites you can go to to learn about doctors. You can learn from the, the state medical board. Has your doctor had a lot of malpractice cases oh, yes. against him? 
Yes. Have there been any other issues against that doctor? You can go to sites that patients go to to rate their doctor. If the doctor has 100 reviews and out of a score of five, they went point five. You don't want to go to that doctor. No. If that doctor has 4.5, 4.7, whatever the case may be, then that those are indications that the people who have seen those doctors will appreciate those doctors. So those are some things that you can do to determine if you want to see that doctor. The board certification, you can research that. You can yeah. research a variety of things online. And don't always go with, one bad review that the patient who gives the doctor a one and a horrible score may have been the person with the virus who was mad because the doctor didn't give her antibiotics. (laughs) So look at the whole picture. Yeah. Yeah. So those would be the the major things. Indeed. Indeed. And an important points I think we probably I take from that is that we do need to do a bit of homework on our doctors if we can. Isn't it? It can be harder with your life. Yeah, it can be harder in some systems, but you know, having lived in Australia and 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 various places, I know, like here in Sweden, mm-hmm. I can also choose my doctor. In Australia, I can mm-hmm. choose my doctor. In the US, uh, to a certain extent, I think you can. Yes. In lots of places, you can choose your clinician, and yeah, that I think is you know very valuable things to do, and not just if you live in a system where that's harder, that is. A little harder, but there's certainly many That's parts true. of the world you have some choice in the matter where you go and, and exactly. the doctor you have and, and the relationships you have. You need to know what's available to you, what's yeah. available in one country may not be available in another. Yeah. And so do your due diligence, do your research to figure yeah. out how you can best determine the best doctor for you. Exactly. That, that is wonderful advice. This has been such a great conversation and I love these are really practical things that each and every one of us can do to improve our whole relationship and the outcomes for our health. Do let people know where they can get hold of your new book, Patient Empowerment 101. So Patient Empowerment 101, more than a book, is an adventure, is available on Amazon. I learned... um, Yesterday, by speaking with someone at Amazon, is new books don't always show up huh. uh, like you want them to. But if you put in Patient Empowerment 101, it should show up. Sometimes you have to put in the name, and Hester, MD. And if you click on books under the category, then it will show up. If you go under general, it's going to be more difficult. So there is a Patient Empowerment 101, more than a book, is an adventure. And then there's also a companion book. But what I did last night in anticipation of this talk today is on the website, patientempowerment101.com, if you scroll to the bottom, you can download one of the charts that I have in the book. It's a mini medical record. You can download it. It's a word form. You can fill it out on your computer. You can print it. You can save it and keep it in your wallet and take it wherever you go because it will give your doctor immediate information about some of the very important things. And another thing, as far as the book, in addition to the book, inside the book, there's information that lets you get deep into that website that you won't see. There's no menu on the website, but you can take quizzes, self-assessment quizzes, watch videos. You can download charts to make your own medical record. And there are symptom-specific charts 
abdominal pain, chest pain, fevers, and so forth, a list of questions that doctors frequently ask about common symptoms. You can download them as often as you want, print them, fill them out. And so when you go to the doctor, you'll have it in hand and you can answer those questions very quickly because you've actually thought through them before you step foot in the doctor's office. That is fantastic. I'm, you know, I hope Thank listeners you. get that. And we will put a link to the book in Amazon and we'll put a link to the website too in the show notes so listeners can find this and really step into empowering themselves in their own health and in getting the most from the doctor. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Hester, for coming on the show and sharing. Oh, it was your such wisdom. a pleasure. It was, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Thriving Through Menopause. If you like this podcast episode, please hop over to my website, thrivethroughmenopause.com, and rate and review it. And thank you if you do that, because it helps others to find the show. Want more news and views on perimenopause and menopause? Then sign up to my weekly newsletter, Heart of Menopause, over on Substack. Thank you once again for listening and see you next week for another guest interview helping you to thrive through menopause. <laughs>